All right. How are we doing this morning? We good? All right. Well, we're going to be um, continuing a series that we started last week, a mini-series called Basic Practices. Uh, we'll be here for a few weeks, and then um, on the 29th, we're starting a series called uh, about faith, work, and generosity. We'll do that for a handful of weeks, and then we'll start the Lenten season focusing on Sabbath and rest for our souls. And so that's where we're going in the upcoming weeks for those type of people that care a lot about where we're going. And so I wanted to kickstart um, this year with a, a focus of basic practices, some basic things that we can kind of reset upon as we enter into the year. You know, authentically following Jesus can kind of be seen as a stool. There's a picture of a stool up here in a minute, uh, but like a three-legged stool. Um, if you ever sat on a stool and, and one of those legs is wobbly, it, the whole thing is pretty wobbly. If you, if you maybe hanging out with a trickster who removes one of those legs and, and you sit on that, you're going you're gonna to fall because two legs can't hold you up. And so likewise, with, with following Jesus, there are three facets that are just necessary if you want to grow with follow, as a follower of Jesus. The first is being with Jesus. This is a necessary leg in our discipleship, that we, we can't grow with Jesus if we're not being with Jesus. The second would be becoming like Jesus. The invitation for the insides of who we are to be transformed, that's a part of the invitation of Jesus, of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus. And lastly, doing what he did. That's a third facet. All three of those legs together are helping us in what it looks like to follow Jesus. You take one of those away, and it just isn't the same. It's not what Jesus designed for us. And so in these three weeks, these basic practices, we're really focusing on those three legs. The first is connecting with Jesus. We talked about that last week, connecting through prayer. This week, we're going to talk about embracing humility. And it, it's, it's a lot. And it, just get your seatbelts on, because I've been getting my butt kicked all week in prep. So um, embracing humility. And then the third is intentional kingdom living, doing what Jesus did. And we'll talk about that next week. We're actually going to have our local care ministry partners uh, coming and sharing with us next week to kind of land some of that. But today I want to consider becoming like Jesus. And therein I want to invite us into just a fresh reminder of embracing humility. You know, Jesus' vision for your life is invasive. Jesus never had a plan to invite you into his kingdom, into eternal life, but not mess with you. Like his design was to get into the core of who you are and as the great divine surgeon to actually redeem and rescue and deliver and ransom things that are in you that are counter to him. He came to rescue and deliver and to reset habits that are inside of us. And so whether we want to admit it or not, we are being formed by something. Jesus invites us into formation, but we are all present tense by Jesus or not being formed into something. See, what we intake is shaping who we are. What we digest is affecting who we are becoming. There's no other way around it, either, either through comparison maybe values you have in comparing yourself with other people, that is shaping and forming you. Maybe it's what you were taught growing up. Those things are shaping and forming you. Maybe someone you want to emulate in your life, shaping and forming you. Something or someone is forming you, forming what we value. Something is forming what you value. Something is forming how you define success. Something is forming what you ought to put your energy toward. Something is forming what you deem to be important in life. 
Something is forming what you should do with your free time, where you should put your priorities, forming whether you should suppress or ignore something or actually allow it to be put on the surface and actually be healed. Something is forming you. The question isn't, are you being formed? But instead, what is forming you? Something, someone is forming you. And the invitation of Jesus is to be deeply formed by him. His invitation is to be the one who becomes the primary former in your life, to be formed into a people of love through deep surrender to and connection with God. This is the invitation. It's not just about going to heaven. It's about God offering you a way of life that changes you here and now as well. So we want to support you in that way. And so under this facet of becoming like Jesus, I want to consider embracing humility. Everybody say humility. Good. The great enemy of pride is humility. The kryptonite to our own ego is humility. Man, these last six months, maybe all of my life, but specifically these last six months, I feel like God has had his finger on the area of ego and pride in me. So this last week, last weeks in prep has been a little more painful. I'm not talking about being humbled. There's space for that. You can be humbled by a circumstance and not be clothed with humility. You can feel broken for a minute and not seek humility. There's one thing to be humbled. A circumstance embarrasses you and not actually value and embrace humility. I'm talking about clothing ourselves and embracing humility. C.S. Lewis, I've said this quote before, I'll say it again. Humility, he says, is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not a devaluing of yourself. You're fearfully and wonderfully made, and that's not, humility isn't designed to suppress or lower that. It's actually just simply thinking less of you. It's decreasing your ego, my ego. Talking about a posture that thinks less of ourselves. If you want a book to just continue to kick your butt after this morning, I would invite you to Andrew Murray's book on humility. Um, it's just called Humility. It's simple. He, was, he came around before marketing really like challenged you to think creative about your title. And so he just wrote a book on humility and he called it Humility. So I want to consider uh, with you a few ways that Jesus invites us in, in humility. Uh, three considerations. The first is this. Jesus exemplified humility. Jesus exemplified humility. In Philippians 2, the, the great text, when you think about humility, it's found, I want to read it to you. He says, Paul writes to this church in Philippi, and he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So pause. Have this mind in yourself. It's also in Christ Jesus. He's not separating. Again, our, our spirituality shapes who we are. Jesus invites us in forming who we are. So have this mind that's also in Christ. And he says, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Jesus emptied himself. 
without ceasing to be God, the eternal God with no bounds, forever bound himself to his creation, put himself into limits by becoming the form of a human, and he completely surrendered himself to his father. See, utter humility seen here, looking, uh, he didn't look at the interest of himself, but at the expense of himself, he was obedient and he surrendered. He exemplified humility. In John chapter 5 and 6, we see two texts I want us to read. 5.19 says, but, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And then six, chapter 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You know, he was fully and completely surrendered to and dependent upon the Father's will, submitted, to, submitted his life to the Father, posturing himself in this position of your will be done. Andrew Murray says in his book, Humility, he says, and this kind of complicates the Trinity, but, but walk with me through it. He says, his humility, Jesus' humility was simply the surrender to himself to God to allow him to do in him what he pleased, regardless of what men might say of him or do to him. He surrendered his life completely to God the Father and said, not my will, your will be done. See, when we're able to more deeply trust in the care and goodness of our Father, the more we have the ability to live from the posture of humility. See, our place is to yield to God and surrender to him. That's counter to everything we hear. In our society and marketing and everything else, we hear, be your own God. Do you. Whatever you feel, whatever you want, you do you. You know what's best, so you do you. Do what you want. Pursue what you want. So the question is, as sociologists, let's step back and ask, how's that going for culture? Like, how is that, what is that leading us into? More anxiety than ever. More anxiety than ever. Exhausted, weary, and yet the invitation of Jesus is a counterway. It's different. It's opposite to what our culture supplies. So Jesus exemplified humility. Secondly, Jesus prioritized teaching about humility. I don't want to allow the red letters of Jesus to to speak to us here. I'm not interested in you hearing my opinion because it's not helpful. But I want us to consider what Jesus said about humility. He said a ton about humility. And I want to consider some of the things he said. In the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus began one of his first teachings in his ministry. Um, And he said this. He opened his mouth in verse 2, chapter 5 in the Gospel of Matthew. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, first thing, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He opens his mouth and one of the first things that he says one of the first things Jesus said in his ministry, one of the last things that Jesus said in his ministry, were focused on this concept, this virtue of humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, a recognition that you're bankrupt apart from God. Poor in spirit, needy for another to supply 
what you don't have. Blessed are the meek. And then he gives these promises. If you're poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is baseline. That is a necessary virtue. And then the meek learn more in a minute, inherit the earth. The first words of his proclamation of the kingdom are found here. Kingdom, it comes to the bankrupt. It comes to those who seek nothing for themselves. The blessing of heaven is for the lowly. The kingdom isn't for the ego. It can't be. There is no room, no debate on who is on the throne. Ego does not exist in the kingdom of Jesus. It exists fully in the kingdom of this world, but not in the kingdom of Jesus. The ego, our ego, and the cross can't belong together. Separate. It's different. It's altogether other than. Fast forward to chapter 11 in Matthew And we read this little phrase in verse 29, where it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, or humble in heart. Jesus says, I am humble in heart. Only time in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus describes his heart, the deepest part of who he is. And in that one time when he describes the deepest part of who he is, he says, I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart. See, the broader text here is profound, and we'll get into it in the Lenten season. But for now, Jesus says, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your soul. See, he invites us to come to him, not the proud, not the ego, but the worn out, the exhausted, the bankrupt in heart, the out of gas. There is an invitation of rest here. You can find rest for your soul if you come to Jesus. So you ask the question, how can I trust Jesus? And we can trust Jesus because his heart is humble. So we see he says, I am humble in heart. We fast forward to the Gospel of Luke. And I had to cut out like a lot of verses to make sure that I had, didn't just make one long service between 9 and 11. Um, and so in Luke 9, uh, For the second time, Jesus has reminded his disciples that he's about to die. This is, again, baffling for his disciples because he's the Messiah and Messiahs don't die. The Messiah, the Christ, is supposed to reign. He's supposed to rule. He's supposed to overthrow the oppressive government of Rome. He ain't supposed to die. And so when Jesus says that he's going to die and he says it a second time, you can imagine the disciples are thinking things. But moments later, a dispute breaks out right after he says to his followers, his students, that he's going to die, a a dispute breaks out, and the dispute is around this question, who is the greatest? And in Luke 9, if you read it at another time, you you see that Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. I mean, that's the crazy part about Rabbi Jesus. It's one thing to be following a rabbi who's teaching you certain things. It's another thing when that rabbi knows everything about what's going on in your mind. And so Jesus, in that moment, he knows everything that's going on within their minds. And so reasoning within their hearts, he understands, he's well aware of the internal battle of insecurity that's taking place. Any fight for power is coming from a position of insecurity. Clawing for greatness or fighting for ego at the core is to prove that you're somebody in your life trying to prove to your inner critic, trying to prove to your outer critic, trying to prove to the world that you're somebody. That is the fight for ego. That is the fight for pride 
And Jesus knew this. And he took a child and he put him before his disciples. This child who had proven nothing, no value in that day. And we read in Luke 9, 48, he says, he who is least among all, he is the greatest. It's passages like this that make me wonder if I know anything about humility. Like he who is least among you all, least, that one is the greatest. That's how Jesus teaches us about humility, thundering reorientation of what the true north is in the eyes of Jesus. It is a different way. A similar story occurs in Matthew 20, but it's about a mom who drives the conversation. The mom comes to the rescue. She never cut the cord. Um, she babied them little babies all their lives, and now her helicopter flies into Jerusalem as she uh, kind of flies right over them, and, and she's, she asks Jesus, how come my beautiful boys sit at your right hand and your left? How can I make sure my boys have status with you? And this excuse my French, but pisses off the disciples. I mean, they're livid at seeing mama, helicopter mama, come in to rescue her boys. They've also been laboring with these other disciples. They're like, what the heck? And a dispute breaks out. We read this in Matthew 20, starting in verse 25. It says, it says this, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Meaning, the way you thought power was, and the way you value power, needs to be shifted, because it is the opposite in my kingdom. It shall not be so among you. But whoever should be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, he's speaking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the true north isn't power. The true north in the kingdom of Jesus is humility. The king of the kingdom makes it clear he didn't come to to be served. He came to serve. Humility is the gold standard in heaven. We'll fast forward for the sake of time to this final section. Um, it's an interesting one. There's two moments that happen in two different texts, and I want to I look at it from both angles. Um, it's something that happens in John 13 and something that happens in, John, or in Luke 22. In John 13, we see uh, what we all know of as the washing of the feet. And then in Luke 22, it's the story of when Jesus first gave communion to his disciples. And I want to look at both of those with you and and see how Jesus is exemplifying his heart within. So John 13, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the ends. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And so what he's about to do is just so 
It's just something that doesn't happen in that day or today. Only the, the lowliest of lowly would, would come, and that day you wore sandals, like leather-type sandals, and your feet are nasty. I mean, like na- your feet might be nasty in this room, and thankfully you're wearing shoes. Their, their feet were even more nasty than yours, okay? So nasty, nasty, and not just because of their own selves. Your feet are nasty because of you. Their feet were nasty because of them and the dung that they stepped on and the dirt and all this. It's just nasty. And so when you came to a meal, a servant would come and they would wash your feet. So you didn't lose your appetite while you're eating. Because in that day, you're sitting on the ground, table on the ground. Your feet are a lot closer to you. A table is not protecting you from your nastiness. And so Jesus, he takes on the the robe of servants, knowing who he was, knowing where he's going, knowing that mere hours later he's about to get arrested and be crucified for their sake, he takes the towel and he washes their feet. And Peter flips. He's livid because you don't do that, Rabbi. You're not supposed to. But Jesus is teaching them something that teaches us as well. We fast forward to verse 12. It says, when he had washed their feet and put his outer garments put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am so. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. After washing his feet, he gives them an example. Do likewise. The way I have just blown your minds, this is the gold standard in the kingdom of heaven. It's counter to the kingdom of this world. See, as the evening, this is the part B of this story. So you have that event. This is all happening in one event. Jesus gets his disciples together. He's washed their feet. He's now given them a meal. It's the Passover. There's no lamb on the table because he is the lamb that's about to be crucified. And then he takes the bread. And Luke's gospel says he earnestly desired to have this meal with his disciples. And he took the bread and he broke it. This is my body broken for you. Took the wine, you gave it, you passed it. This is my blood poured out for your forgiveness. Take and eat. And so they take and eat. Their feet are smelling good. They are now have eaten. They have now experienced this moment of communion. And moments later, at the same table, after their feet are washed, a dispute breaks out on who's the greatest. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine being Jesus? I mean, simple math would say that he's, he's been with them 8,000 hours. And he's about to die. Can you imagine how livid you'd be? I'd kill him. I'd kill every single one of them. I mean, can you imagine? Do you not get anything? I've just told you. The, the very act of what I just gave you in Luke's Gospel, Luke 22 Starting in verse 24, it says this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, similar to the Matthew gospel, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them 
are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as who serves. For who is the greater one, who, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I among you as the one who serves? I mean, what do we see about the heart of Jesus in these teachings? His kingdom values humility. It's the true north. It's the gold standard. The greatest is the one who serves. Andrew Murray goes on to say, whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Oh, that God would convince us that Jesus means this. This is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven. This is the royal spirit that the kingdom of heaven displayed. This is God-like, to humble oneself and to become the servant of all. This was incredibly countercultural in this day for Jesus to say this. this is he, Jesus was the one who birthed servant leadership. And in our day, we take that leadership principle and have thrown out the source and the very one who can motivate us to become that. So we end with this third point, which is this. Jesus invited us to become people who embrace humility. Jesus invites us to become people who embrace humility. You know, abundant life isn't found in our ego. Abundant life isn't found in getting our own way. Abundant life isn't found in being in control. Abundant life isn't found in achieving a little bit more. Abundant life isn't found in what you have. Abundant life is not found in what others say about you. Life is found in embracing humility. Truly. First, last, the greatest, the servant. But man, if we can be honest, we care a lot about ourselves. I care a lot about myself. Pride and ego are just ingrained in us. Our dreams, our desires, our wants, our expectations, our hopes, our goals, our feelings, our opinions. It's me, it's me, it's me. And then our culture just affirms it. We're lathered in pride. We have pride at the core of who we are because of Adam and Eve. Marketing exploits us here, just baits us. To continue, that dumb carrot of marketing just continues that thing that you need to focus on you. We feel this vicious desire to rebel against Jesus' vision for humility. I feel it in my life. I feel it in my marriage. I feel it in my marriage at times where I want to I serve to be served. That's not the way of the kingdom. Jesus offers us another way. Jesus' vision for marriage is outdoing one another. Not tit for tat, I serve to serve. It's not like that. Jesus' invitation is to revolt against the innate desire for selfishness. And it takes a radical and intentional way of life that bucks against our innate desire for selfishness, allowing the indwelling life of Jesus to form us. Which means we just can't coast through the Christian life. Say it like this. If you coast through the Christian life, pride will be your wake. It's just natural. Just because you pray a prayer doesn't mean all of a sudden your pride's gone. It takes intentionality. The sad truth is you can be a Christian and be deeply entangled with pride. You can have intellectual convictions on spiritual things and be filled with pride. Its grip is too strong to just coast against it. We won't stumble into it. I mean, by nature of thinking about this weekend and Martin Luther King, the innate selfishness plays out in, in how we interact with people. 
We found this in the 60s during the civil rights movement as just an example of many in the wake of Jim Crow law. A challenge in that day to seek humility by serving and caring for our black and brown skinned brothers and sisters. See, we can't love God and not love our neighbor. We can't be humble towards God if we're proud towards our neighbor. So when Martin Luther King wrote to these white pastors in the Birmingham jail, he was asking them to seek humility with him. He was asking them to to serve him and help him and the, the cause that they were dealing with. I mean, just remind you of what he wrote. He says, as he's sitting in jail pleading for his white brothers and sisters to speak up and to serve, he says, I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, but when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that was, has just been advertised on television, I see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children. I see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky. I see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking an agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you, when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes the N-word and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and when your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs., when you're harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are an, a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to, re- to wait. See, our relationships, how we treat our neighbor, starting with our family. Neighbor doesn't begin outside of your family. It begins with your marriage and your parenting, and moves outward. How we treat our neighbor exposes our pride, our ego, and our innate selfishness. And and the beautiful thing is that Jesus offers us another way. The beautiful thing is Jesus doesn't leave us in that place. The beautiful thing is not just about an invitation. He also supplies the power to follow through. It's not just a distance like, good luck. Like He actually empowers us with the indwelling spirit to actually overcome the innate pride within. See, to become like Jesus, that leg on the stool, is to embrace humility. So I'll close with this. Reading a book, I've been reading, um, I have it down there, I was supposed to bring it up here, but I forgot, so whatever. But um, reading a book about uh, a shepherd's view of Psalm 23. So if you serve in Sojourn Kids, Virginia gave you one of those books. And so I've been reading through that. 
super insightful. He, he breaks down every line in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. Breaks that down uh, in he, and, and, and he, each chapter. And so there's a chapter on I shall not want, or I lack nothing, or I have what I need. And it reminded me of a weapon against our ego and pride. And it's not about getting stuff. The weapon is an abiding trust in God. I shall not be in want is a declaration that I, ha- I so trust the care and management of my master and good shepherd that I lack nothing. See, when we experience the care of our shepherd, truly, we are liberated to know that we don't have to look out for ourselves. That's what ego is. It's this insecurity of looking out for ourselves that when we know deeply that God cares for me, God manages my life. He loves me. He's for me. He has died for his sheep. He is the one who is my protector. When we know deeply that we're cared for, we don't have to look out for ourselves. And that's the gospel invitation for us. The gospel isn't just a doorway we walk through. It's the very thing that we preach to ourselves day in and day out, that I have one who cares for me, who loves me, who I don't need to prove myself towards, and it's from that place that frees my grip from ego and pride and trying to be understood and trying to be somebody in this life. There's something so liberating. And day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, we just bang on our hearts this reminder that I'm loved and I'm cared for and I have nothing to prove. And slowly, it's like coins in an old school uh, Coke machine. Slowly, those things trickle into our hearts and we begin to become formed differently than maybe we once were being formed. See, when we experience that care, we don't have to look out for ourselves So we can land and agree with Dallas Willard, which I mentioned this quote last week, when he says, it is love of God, admiration and confidence in his greatness and goodness, and the regular experience of his care, regular experience of his care, that free us from the burden of looking out for ourselves. Friends, pride and ego are burdens. They are weights that do not lead you to life. On the contrary, regularly reminding ourselves of his care is the very thing that frees our hearts from the thing that entangles us from within. So we're all being formed by something, and Jesus invites us to be formed by him. And I would just say the first step for us is becoming aware, recognizing ego, recognizing pride, And when it rears its head, turn. Turn your heart. Turn your heart. Turn your heart. Well, am I going to run out of turning? Is Jesus going to be like, dang, you are wretched on the inside. I don't want you anymore. No, remember, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm gentle and humble in heart. We turn again. We turn again turn again. So I want to pray for us. If this resonates, maybe maybe this sermon was just for me, and I know it wasn't, (laughs) and you feel the the fight of pride, and and yet the the gentle invitation to humility, I want to ask you to stand as an act of humility. I want to pray for you.
So in the next five seconds, muster the courage to stand up and I would love to pray for you. And as you do, I just ask that you maybe just open your hands like you're receiving a gift. And I just, I just want to pray for us together. Father, we confess truly. Man, we are a selfish people. Ego abounds, pride abounds. And God, we give you thanks for your mercy. God, we thank you that you haven't left us to our own vices. You haven't left us to our inner brokenness, but you've come to deliver and heal. And your balm of grace and mercy is, is real. And you're gentle and humble in heart. And I ask that you would help us to value humility as a community. Help us to see your invitation that the first will be last and the last will be first, that this life isn't it, that there is a kingdom coming where the first is last and the last is first. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a vision of something bigger than our little kingdom. And I pray you'd invite us into more. Lord, we welcome your spirit to clothe us with humility to remind us that greatness is found through servanthood, that greatness is found and laying down our lives. Lord, fill us afresh with your spirit. We can't do this thing on our own. Fill us with your presence. Fill us with your nearness. Remind us that you're with us. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.